Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Friday afternoon. Uh, plenty more still to come this afternoon. We will hear at 3.30, as mentioned, from Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health and uh, a few other topics to get to between now and then. This Sunday marks 57 years since you know, certainly one of the biggest events of the 21st century, the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy, 11 So it was obviously a huge event. People who were born long after are, are well aware of it. I mean, one of the reasons why there's still fascination with it, though, of course, is not just that a, a sitting president was shot to death, but just all of the conspiracy theories around it. You know, that there were other forces at play here, other agendas at play here. And, you know, the uh, idea that there was a secret conspiracy, it, it certainly, I, I think, has prolonged the fascination. And it's still very much alive today. Uh, that somebody other than, or including, I guess, Lee Harvey Oswald was responsible for what happened. And we've spoken before with our next guest. In fact, he wrote a book a couple of years ago uh, on his own early uh, infatuation with some of these conspiracy theories before eventually coming around to the view that indeed Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin. Uh, so he's got a long-standing interest in this topic. His latest book is called On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, the Great Accuser. Uh, joining us to talk more about the assassination, the conspiracy theories, uh, and this new book. You can read more, by the way, uh, at the website on the trail of delusion.com. Fred Litwin joins us on the line here this afternoon. Fred, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I hope you're doing well. Congrats on the new book. Uh, thank you. Uh, so let's talk about um, what, what led you to this specific aspect of the story. There, there's a lot to the JFK story, as you well know. I, I guess people who have seen the Oliver Stone movie have a good idea yep. who Jim Garrison is. But let's talk about why you, you wanted to explore this topic in particular. Well, it's, it's an absolutely incredible story. It's a story of, a, of an innocent gay man, Clay Shaw, who was charged with conspiracy to kill Kennedy in 1967 by the district attorney of New Orleans, Jim Garrison. And it took two years to come to trial. Shaw was then acquitted, and then Garrison charged him with perjury. It took two years for him to get that charge quashed. And then uh, he got ill and died of cancer with most of his life savings uh, gone. It's uh, a tragic story, and I told the story in my last book. But what I wanted to do in this book was I traveled around to every archive in the United States that had primary Jim Garrison documents, and I told not only this story, but other stories of other people he went after. And I provide a lot of primary documents so that people can see uh, exactly what happened. So let's take it back to the beginning. So as you mentioned, so Jim Garrison is a district attorney in, in Orleans Parish in Louisiana. So obviously the assassination took place in Dallas. So this 
not necessarily in his jurisdiction, but how, how does he then insert himself? How does he become a part of this story here? Well, Lee Harvey Oswald lived in New Orleans for five months prior to the assassination. And in fact, there were two leads in New Orleans that Garrison investigated back in 1963 with the FBI. And so when there was all this conspiracy fever in the fall of 1966, Garrison got caught up in it and he thought, you know what, let me go back to those leads back from 1963 and reinvestigate them and maybe I could find something. And he went back and looked at those leads and nothing really happened and he ended up unfortunately, manufacturing evidence. Why would he do that? Was, was it just then at this point about, you know, his, his own profile, trying to, to make himself famous? Was he just so hell-bent on, on going after Clay Shaw or trying to prove something? What's your sense of what motivated him at that point? Well, he, 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 he was a man of tremendous ambition. He really wanted to be senator or governor of Louisiana, uh, he had gone after everybody in New Orleans, from judges to the mayor to the police, um, as political targets. Nobody was left, actually. Even the governor of Louisiana was scared of him. And so when he went down the assassination uh, rat hole, or rabbit hole, um, one of his suspects, unfortunately, died of natural causes. And uh, his staff at that point, this was early on in the investigation, his staff said, you know, you can quit now. You can hang your shoes up, say you investigated as far as you can, nothing happened, and you'll be a hero. But Garrison thought it was the crime of the century and that he could solve it. And unfortunately, he just never stopped, and he ended up ruining a lot of people's lives, manufacturing evidence, uh, intimidating and bribing witnesses. Yeah, and it's kind of an ugly manifestation of of you know this this kind of belief in conspiracy right it's it's one thing to to not accept the official version of events to insist that it must have gone down a different way but you know it's one thing to have those beliefs it's quite another to to go about it this way and just sort of take a wrecking ball to so many people's lives yeah you know it's 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 fun if you believe in the loch ness monster or sasquatch or you have a interest in ufo's i don't care if you believe in a conspiracy in jfk but he went after real-life people, and he made their lives miserable. Um, I mean, besides ruining Clay Shaw's life. And Clay Shaw was a World War II hero who just wanted to retire and write plays, and his life was ruined. But he went after other people, like uh, Carlos Bringier was an anti-Castro Cuban. Uh, Garrison went after him, and his wife was so worried about him being arrested that she had a miscarriage. And there's just lots of stories like that. And in, in Garrison's wake, well, left, he left a lot of ruined lives. Let's talk about Clay Shaw. Um, you know, not only so did he find himself in the crosshairs of, of Garrison's crusade, but his, his sexual orientation was very relevant to the story, right? So it's not just an aside. It's not just, oh, by the way, Clay Shaw also happened to be gay. But th this was something that Garrison really made a point of going after. Yeah, he, he, he was, Garrison was looking for this Mr. Clay Bertrand who had tried to hire uh, a lawyer in, in New Orleans to represent Lee Harvey Oswald. And Clay Bertrand, who nobody knew who it was, but he was gay, he spoke Spanish, and Garrison had this belief that, well, Clay Shaw was gay, Clay Shaw spoke Spanish, and he believed that gay people, when using a pseudonym, keep the same first name. So he believed that Clay Shaw was this mysterious Clay Bertrand. And uh, on the basis, he had no evidence. 
but he ended up uh, with one witness who he uh, administered truth serum, hypnotized three times to recover a memory that Shaw was at a party where they discussed the assassination, and that was enough to have him arrested. And, and, and of course, as you say, initially, Garrison thought it was a homosexual conspiracy. Right. Um, so it was another way in which, and, and look, obviously, at, at that time, and, and in Louisiana, to be really emphasizing this and making a big deal of, of this aspect of the story was just another way of just kind of publicly humiliating, basically, wasn't it? Clay Shaw, and really trying to, to demolish his reputation. Yeah, well, Clay Shaw was in the closet. His, his, his close friends, of course, knew he was gay, but it was, it was still it was deep south. Even though it was New Orleans, it was still somewhat taboo to be openly gay. And in fact, uh, Shaw never really wanted this to be discussed at all. And Garrison brought this out, and uh, it, 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 it made Clay Shaw very, very vulnerable because it made it hard to defend himself, and it also made a lot of his friends very, very, very nervous about whether they would be named in, in this probe as well. So one would think that if, if Hollywood were going to sink its, its hooks into this story, that it would be about the persecution of a gay man. It would be about the victimization of Clay Shaw. Yet somehow, Oliver Stone made a movie that made Jim Garrison a hero. So it, <laughs> how did that I, happen? I've always said somebody should make a movie. Um, it's really <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, I mean, Oliver Stone decided he had to make a movie about the JFK assassination, and unfortunately has his vehicle to tell the story. He chose Jim Garrison. He, cho- he, he optioned Garrison's book, paid him a quarter of a million dollars, and made Garrison the hero, and he turned Clay Shaw into a horrible, ugly villain uh, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. It's a, it's a, Clay Shaw was victimized the second time. Yeah, he really was. And yeah, and I mean, Tommy Lee Jones took the role. Kevin Costner jumped into films. I mean, it's a lot of the blame maybe rests with Oliver Stone, but everybody else was more than happy to, to get on board with this project. Yeah, and you, and you look at the way Tommy Lee Jones played it. I mean, you just have to, you know, five minutes of looking at the way it was played, you knew that Clay Shaw was guilty. I mean, he really played him up as an evil evil person and and it was just it was really horrible I, I, it's an appalling thing that oliver stone did now i i'm i'm not sh- totally sure in the time it was was jim garrison still alive when that movie came out i think he died yeah, jim, around jim that garrison time. was in the movie oh was jim he? garrison okay. had a cameo role, play, role playing earl warren oh really how ironic and and unfortunately garrett garrison died right after the movie came out so he was he so, was very yeah. sick when that happened. Okay. All right. So between the whole hubbub of the original Clay Shaw trial, so this is now uh, the late 60s, I think 69 was, was the trial, and then yep. early 90s then when, when the movie comes out. Did Jim Garrison, I mean, did, did he kind of fade then into the background? What, what happened to him after the trial and, and in the 70s and, and 80s? Well, after the trial, he he wrote a a book called The Heritage of Stone, which blamed uh, the assassination on the CIA. He didn't mention Clay Shaw because there were still appeals in place. And then, of course, he went back uh, and tried to convince the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1976 and 77 that he had all these great leads. And every single lead that he gave them to investigate, this was the famous second investigation, none of Garrison's leads turned anywhere, turned out. Um, and so his only option after that was to write his book, which, of course, he had paid her with Oliver Stone. Um, 
so he was he was lucky at the end he finally he finally hit the big time so he was a figure of some some profile some notoriety and you know certainly had what what would seem to people like a credible argument that he's a district attorney and he's trying to solve a crime so do you think that he was influential in in persuading people that there really was a conspiracy what would you see as as his role in in advancing and keeping those conspiracy theories going I think he was greatly influential because he crisscrossed the United States talking about conspiracy, talking about the CIA and the military-industrial complex, and uh, he was very influential. You know, you could just see um, he was everywhere, um, and his books, you know, his books sold quite well, um, and a lot of people went from there and took his arguments further. Um, so, yeah, he was very influential, unfortunately. And absent the movie maybe he would have kind of faded into history. Certainly the, the movie gave him and his reputation and, and everything that preceded it. It certainly breathed new life into all of that, didn't it? Oh, it, it, it really did. I mean, after the movie, the paperback edition of his, of his book came out. They paid, Warner Brothers paid him $140,000 for the paperback rights. Um, and, of course, the hardcover still sold. I mean, it was, it was a huge seller. Um, yeah, it was, it, was the, it was the start of a huge amount of interest. I mean, the film grossed $210 million. It was a, a huge hit at the time. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. And, of course, on DVD, people are still today buying the DVD or the Blu-ray set of Oliver Stone's film. It still sells. Which I, th I think speaks to the broader phenomenon that there just still is a real fascination isn't it? And, and I remember, you know, to me, I'm fascinated with this. I remember reading and devouring Stephen King's book uh, a few years ago. Yeah, so uh, right. this, You know, and, and, and I was looking forward to this conversation, too, for the exact same reason. It, it is just, it is a fascinating story. People are, are still, uh, you know, people who were born long after it, uh, very much uh, still fascinated with it. Why do you think that is? It's, it's the ultimate of conspiracy theories. So this is the Rosetta Stone of conspiracy theories. It explains everything. And for a lot of people, it allows you to use the JFK assassination to explain uh, geopolitical events today. If you don't like the CIA, you could say, well, it's all because of the JFK assassination. If you don't like American foreign policy, you could say it was because of the assassination, everything changed. So it allows you to use the assassination in a variety of ways to to explain your current political beliefs. Well, the book is called On the Trail of Delusion, Jim Garrison, The Great Accuser. Much more, it's onthetrailofdelusion.com. Fred, it's been great talking to you here again today. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. All the best. Uh, that is Fred Litwin. His uh, latest book is called On the Trail of Delusion, onthetrailofdelusion.com. Also, his previous book, I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak. So he, he's long been fascinated with this, like a lot of people, and sort of went from believing that, yeah, maybe there really was a conspiracy to ultimately, no, it doesn't look like there was, actually. Uh, but certainly, yeah, it, it, the story of Jim Garrison and what happened to Clay Shaw is, is a story that does, deserves some specific attention in all of this. And so it's, uh, it's explored in, in Fred's new book. Welcome back. Uh, Rob Reaganridge with you. So as mentioned, we'll hear from Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health uh, on the situation here in Alberta. It doesn't sound like the Alberta government's going to be releasing any uh, new modeling numbers, but uh, it's pretty clear we're on a, a worrying trajectory. 
We did see some new data released by the federal government earlier today, which uh, suggests that really the country as a whole is is on a, a dangerous path here and that we got to figure out how to to mitigate a lot of this. Now, I think, unfortunately, we've kind of backed ourselves into a corner where maybe further restrictions, lockdown measures might be our only option. But what about the strategy that, that really you know, has been emphasized throughout this whole pandemic is to try to stay a step ahead of the virus? Uh, a surveillance approach, test, trace, isolate. And, you know, and let's be honest, Alberta did have some success on that front uh, for, for certainly large parts of, of this whole situation. It, it's kind of fallen off the rails at the moment, though, unfortunately. Contact tracing in Alberta is a real mess uh, for now. But when it comes to testing and, and approving new testing devices, obtaining new testing devices, that, that falls to the federal government. And so there's some frustration maybe that we haven't been as, as nimble on this as, as we should be in making sure that we have lots of options so that we can do the amount of testing that's necessary and we can stay a step ahead of this. We seem to be getting closer to the point of having uh, at-home testing as an option. And so what more do we need to do to make sure that that's something uh, that we can incorporate into our response? Uh, so joining us uh, for some further thoughts on uh, some of these questions, very pleased to welcome uh, to the program here this afternoon, uh, certainly someone with some some insight on all of this. Uh, joining us on the line uh, here this afternoon is Dr. Uh, Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist at the University of Toronto, director of the Center for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital. Dr. Jha, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Nice to be with you. Let me get your thoughts, first of all, just in terms of, you know, the situation in Canada at the moment, worrying trends in terms of case growth, positive rate growth, hospitalization growth, increases in deaths. It's right across the board. It doesn't seem to be a very good situation. I think you nailed it right in your introduction that we've backed ourselves in a corner because in the summer, when cases were down and deaths were few, we should have been preparing for a fall wave by really ramping up testing, making sure that we got uh, the home testing options available and uh, preparing for a tough uh, tough fall. Now, I think all governments just let their guard down at the federal and provincial level. So now we're playing catch up and uh, that's it's, it's much harder to do when you have a lot more infection circulating in the community is to implement those strategies of test contact tracing and isolation, but it's still not too late to do so. I think mm -hmm. it really should be done on almost a war footing as quickly as possible. Help us understand, you know, we, we hear a lot about test, trace, isolate, and I think people understand mm -hmm. the basics of what that is, but, but why, when <clears throat> done right, is that such an effective strategy? Well, there's two things. One is we've got now a good understanding of the virus and how it transmits. So remember early on, we were so concerned that, oh, you know, you pick it up from surfaces and grocery bags and so forth. It just ended up not being true. It's close contacts and mostly contacts within a house and in indoor settings with basically poor ventilation and prolonged exposure. So we know that. Um, so that means very simply, if I'm infected in my house, and I know almost certainly that my family would get infected. But the other part that we now know is that basically after nine days, the virus will die. Uh, so you take two weeks as kind of a safety buffer. And if 
my fam if I got infected, I locked my family down and I was in my house, then the worst would be some of us would get infected. Uh, but the infection wouldn't spread from our house. So it's a very simple principle that uh, can be applied to control the epidemic. But what you need to know is uh, to get the testing part right. We were supposed to be at a level of testing about 200,000 people a day in Canada, and we're nowhere near that. That was uh, an aspiration that uh, was set out, but we're nowhere near that. All the provinces are lagging behind their relative quotas. So this is where home testing might well have a important role. And again, I believe that um, Health Canada has been too slow to approve and review the home testing uh, kits. I mean, they are being widely used in other parts of the world. And the basic principle of it is pretty simple. Is first, you have to trust Canadians, which one of the early reviews said, oh, we, we won't be able to, the Canadians won't be able to use this right. I think that's a bit paternalistic. If you have, most Canadians are responsible, and if they had a home test, then I think they would follow those procedures. Test, if you're positive, isolate, and keep your family isolated. Now, if you get really sick, of course, you have to go to the hospital. But for the vast majority of cases, it's we're really talking about that scenario. Yeah, one of the concerns, like obviously any new testing device has to be reviewed and approved by Health Canada. There's a process there. But we've mm -hmm. also set a, a standard, which has been a bit of a barrier. The, the idea that uh, any test that gets approved in Canada has to have a certain threshold, a certain uh, sensitivity, and maybe it's a case of letting perfect be the enemy of the good. How, how has that gone in the way of, of all of this? It, uh, it really isn't uh, a big concern because if uh, m most of the concerns would be that you get uh, false positives um, that basically you light up saying, okay, I actually have not been infected or I have been inf uh, infected uh, um, or the test shows I've been infected, whereas, in fact, I've been not. So the approach for that would be reasonably simple. Do another test um, or, meaning repeat the test, or go in and get a test at the confirmatory lab, um, meaning through the, the provinces. And I think there's an important piece that we've also not done enough, which is to get the, the contact tracing apps enabled so that you can actually report a home test. So now think about this. The the, con the federal COVID tracing app is actually quite good, yeah. and it's completely anonymous. You know, it's, no one's getting that information except the person who has the phone. It, you know, it works by Bluetooth so that if I enter into my phone, I've been tested positive, then it'll know from the Bluetooth history, whoever I've been in contact with, and just send them a note saying you were exposed to somebody who tested positive. Doesn't tell you who, doesn't tell any details of the person, then that's an incentive for me to go get tested. So I think getting the federal contact tracing adapted, or this app ad adapted to enable home test results to be entered and verified. And that's a very simple thing. Right now you enter a provincial number with your test result, because they don't want quacks to enter in all sorts of stuff. But this can be modified. You take a picture which has your confirmed test, so and it's verifiable in a sense. And you know, just make it a a, a crime to report tests uh, that are 
uh, that are uh, or basically false tests uh, or prank tests. Just make it a crime that you can potentially crack down on. And if we made the app also work on older phones, then you have a lot more people being able to control their decisions intelligently. And I do trust Canadians. I think most Canadians would do that. If I'm in a household, mm-hmm. and let's say uh, I have to go to work for my research purposes, so I take the public transport and go down to my office and use masks and all of those things. But So I'm slightly higher risk, but nothing like if I were a frontline uh, nursing staff or a teacher or, or if I was working in a long-term care home. But if I was in any of those really high-risk jobs, what would I do? Well, I test myself regularly, maybe twice a week. And if I'm positive, I basically lock down my house and say we're all going to stay put and others can be tested. And if enough people did that, you would be able to uh, give them a tool where if they are going out and doing essential work, like teachers, for example, then uh, they at least have the surety that um, they've been tested regularly and they're not spreading infection. So we haven't we haven't got this right. We blew the summer away, and yeah. uh, but this is a time to now quickly catch up, be innovative, and I believe trust Canadians to do the right thing, uh, and uh, and I think most will. Yeah, and I think again, you know, we're we're zeroed in on the short term here, and and you know how we get a handle on things in in the coming weeks here, but. You know, we're going to be dealing with this for some months yet to come. And even once we have a, a vaccine widely available, you know, to, to have widely available tests as a backstop is, is probably advisable. So, you know, we, we still got a long time that we're going to have to deal with this. So as you said earlier, right, it's, it's really not too late. And it's, it's probably long past time that, that we, we prioritize this so that we can get ahead of this as quickly as possible. That's right. You want to go into a battle with all the tools you can. So, of course, we have masks and making masks pretty much mandatory for kind of any indoor setting is a good indoor public setting is a good idea. We've uh, uh, we should have better tracing. And then if you think about the short term, uh, short term priorities, we clearly are concerned about protecting nursing homes, but nursing home staff who are the main source, who have been the main source of infections. Right now, the testing is not mandatory and it tends to be every couple of weeks at best. Nursing home staff should be tested twice a week and a home test would actually fill that gap. And if you think about other key uh, areas that we want to protect, certainly nursing homes are one, healthcare providers are another, teachers, so we can keep our schools open. And uh, frontline workers, grocery clerks, so forth. So it wouldn't be hard to identify a high pop, high uh, yield population in which you'd want to get them to encourage testing uh, and basically trust them to do so, report their results uh, at least into the app so that others that they know will be notified. Uh, and as we think about the vaccine, remember, we can't bank on a vaccine as the end of this pandemic because the number of doses that will be available in the medium term is going to be reasonably limited. Yeah. And those doses will be for exactly the highest risk populations, the 
people in nursing homes. That's the most important, I believe. So we don't have our elders uh, dying or suffering in nursing homes. All the nursing home staffs, frontline hospital staff, those would be the priorities for any vaccine. And for the rest of us, we'll, we'll have to carry on using physical distancing, masks, and if we had testing and contact tracing, uh, and I believe you could, you should have the contact tracing set up, but the government cannot just do it on its own. So that's why you turn to Canadians to do self-test and self-isolation. Um, there's a fourth piece of that, which is you really need to communicate this clearly. The public health officials have to clearly communicate saying what is the expectations and what do we want people to do and bring people along. Um, right now, we're spending way much too, too much time talking about, oh, is the only solution to this a lockdown? Um, and I think that's going to be more harmful than not. We need to do the things that work before we move to a lockdown. Yeah, well said. We'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Jha, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really pre- your, appreciate your insight on all this. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Prabhat Jha joining us uh, from Toronto, epidemiologist, uh, health economist, founding director of the Center for Global Health Research at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto at the University of Toronto. Uh, and his thoughts on, on why, you know, we, we got to make this uh, a much bigger priority than it is. We need to take a break here, though. Uh, plenty more still to come. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back with more right after this. All right, welcome back. Rob Regenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, it's certainly that time of year, and going to be that time of year, when, when folks start heading out in the backcountry, whether it be skiing or snowmobiling or climbing, cross-country skiing, all kinds of different activities. And maybe more so this year, with a lot of other travel options being limited, you know, like we saw in the summer with folks getting out and camping and enjoying the backcountry, we may see a lot of that this winter. So with that in mind, the Association for Canadian Mountain Guides launched a new Backcountry Safe initiative. You can go to backcountrysafe.ca. There's a lot of resources there on what folks need to know before they head out into the backcountry. And the risk of avalanche is, is something that certainly people need to be aware of. So to help with this uh, safe initiative, to help get the message out about how things can go wrong and what people need to know, uh, a couple of individuals are, are lending their voice to this campaign. Uh, they were part of a group that was caught in an avalanche in British Columbia in 2016. Uh, a situation uh, that took the life of Doug Churchill. Well, joining us on the line uh, this afternoon to talk more about it um, are two of those who were directly impacted by this situation, uh, Sheila Churchill is the uh, the widow of Doug Churchill. She joins us on the line here this afternoon. Hi there, Sheila. Welcome to the program. Uh, good afternoon, Rob, and thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about our Backcountry Safe initiative. Yeah, and also joining us this afternoon is uh, Mitch Putnam, who was also a survivor of this avalanche and is lending his voice to this campaign. Mitch, good to have you with us here as well. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having us. Um, so, look, obviously, this is something that had an incredible impact on, on your lives and obviously, uh, you know, especially for you, Sheila, but the importance of, of, you know, sharing your experience and letting others learn from from what happened here. Why was it important to you? And we'll ask you first, Sheila, uh, to be a part of this and, and to speak about what happened four years ago. Well, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, 10 members of our ski trip 
group were engulfed by an avalanche and that uh, there were multiple serious injuries with five full burials and five partial burials and although every one of us was quickly unburied in 10 minutes uh, my husband died Doug died of critical injuries three days after in the ICU and for me grief has been a very private journey but we have chosen to go public right now to share our story and the lessons we have learned from this avalanche and our goal with Backcountry Safe is just a simple one to raise awareness about safety in the backcountry through the lessons that we have learned yeah Mitch your thoughts yeah definitely I concur with that and on our website we we do a I think a pretty fair job of outlining our story uh, through video and, and uh, written content that really um, also extends to all the lessons, as Sheila said. Um, we, as we look back, we learned so much of what we could have done differently, and and I think it's very applicable to uh, any group heading out to the backcountry uh, in the future. That um, whether you're guided or not guided, um, there's a lot of a lot of considerations you need to take in before you head out there. Yeah, and let's talk about that, Sheila, because, I mean, obviously, you know, the trauma of what you went through, the, the grief that followed, and, and then, you know, to to ask those questions and look back and think about, you know, what what could we have done differently, or, or what do I wish that I had known, um, and, and that's going to be a difficult process, too, but that's that's where, you know, this, this can be a lesson to others, so let me ask both of you, but, but Sheila first, I mean, when you look back then, and, and what are the, the aspects of the story that, that you think people really need to know about? Well, you know, we have broken down our lessons into five themes. So last week we focused on know yourself, know your group. This week we're focusing on know your guide. Next week we're going to be plan your day. But regardless of which theme uh, you look at or whether you hire a guide or not, I think the three most critical takeaways that we have learned is educate, plan, and communicate. And understand that the critical importance of group dynamics and the human factor when you're out together in the backcountry. Yeah, Mitch, expand on that. So let's talk about you know where, where these, these, these lessons apply here and, and what people need to, to draw from your own experience. Yeah, I think it, it really starts um, with your pre, pre-trip pre planning. And even the morning of, there's, there's great resources to access. Uh, the Avalanche Canada website is a phenomenal resource for um, getting some uh, up-to-date avalanche ratings and snowpack analysis and, you know, um, you need good weather forecasting. And uh, and then just observations uh throughout the region from other other people contributing and guides and, and so forth. So you can gather a lot of information before you even start your trip. And then and then the you know the day of you need to do some analysis as you are moving through avalanche terrain and you need to uh, be prepared to change your you know your your route path and, and decision making based on what you're seeing and, and how the group's doing. And and Sheila touched on it. The human factor is a is a big a big deal, and I think a lot of experts are starting to uh, recognize this as a major contributor to to incidents in the backcountry. And it is that that group dynamic where you have various personalities and different levels of 
fitness and tolerance for risk and, and things like this. And you, at the end of the day, you just need to be communicating. And I think the bigger the group, potentially the bigger the the issue with that. And then if you have a guide like we did that day, that that's another another interesting uh, uh, dynamic uh, that you need to you need to deal with. And um, yeah, so I mean the, the the human factors are a big one. And then once you're out there, you need to manage your group. And in our situation, we did a just a really poor job of managing our group on an exposed avalanche um, a slope. And we had basically, as Sheila said, there's 10 people, almost 12 out of 13 that were uh, engulfed in this avalanche. And that should never happen. I mean, we all accept a certain level of risk when we go to the backcountry, but you manage that as best you can. And and make conservative decisions and and worst case you might have one one or two people in a large group exposed at one time and not not the majority of your group so that's kind of a sampling of some of the the things that you know we took away from our experience yeah yeah and, and sheila the point about a guide i mean it's it's an important component uh of of this kind of a journey but at the same time maybe it's one of the aspects where you know there can become that people can be lulled into a sense of security that, okay, we have a guide, so everything's taken care of, right? Yeah, and and I totally agree. Um, I am the perfect example. I had abdicated my personal responsibility to the guide, and it was incumbent upon me to uh, ask more questions. Um, and, and, you know, I... As Mitch had said, you know, take some avalanche training courses, uh, avalanche skills training, AST1 or 2 or first aid. We all had some degree of avalanche training, but um, we we didn't apply it for ourselves personally. Uh, There was an expectation that the guide would make the decisions for our group. So, you know, whether you're with a guide or whether you're just with a group of friends, talk to each other and and connect throughout the entire day is everybody comfortable you know are we on the right slope for the conditions and you know be be comfortable to speak up and Mm -hmm. and state when you're not feeling safe and um make sure you check in with everybody else in the group too whether it's the guide or your group members you need to communicate Yeah, and that's the thing, Mitch, and, and and I think this this whole campaign is about you know finding that balance because you know there's there's the danger of complacency, obviously the danger of thinking it's not going to happen to me, or the danger of thinking that someone's got it looked after, but it's not about going the extreme other way and saying you know it's it's too dangerous, don't go to the back country, right? It's it's certainly it can be enjoyable, it can be safe, it can be fun, but it's it's about being equipped with knowledge, isn't it? Uh, that's exactly right, and you know, I think of our day. It was a beautiful bluebird day, and a lot of smiles within our group. It was uh, very enjoyable. We had done the day before. This was a week-long trip, and the day before, we had done a couple of easy, uh, low-profile runs just to get our legs go on. And and so, yeah, we were in a different space. You know, we our our age group was in the fifties and sixties. We weren't young thrill seekers, um, if that's a fair. I guess, but uh, um, then all of a sudden we found ourselves on this, uh, you know, steep, exposed, long uh, chute, and um, before we knew it, we were in a real tragedy, and 
And there are consequences that hit you so quickly. Like we had obviously the worst case, we lost we lost Doug, and but we also have multiple injuries within our group, and some of them are uh, lifelong lasting. And um, so, yeah, there's certainly consequences, and you can you know you can get lured into a, a, as you say a sense of complacency. All right. Well, again, the, the website is backcountrysafe.ca, and if folks are thinking about heading out into the backcountry at some point uh, during the winter, uh, certainly go there first. And there's there's some some great tips and advice and, and more on, on your own story, backcountrysafe.ca. Uh, Sheila, Mitch, uh, again, thanks so much for joining us here today. I really do appreciate this. Well, thanks very much, Rob. Uh, I appreciate you giving us a call and helping us spread the message, you know, get people to our back our backcountrysafe.ca website and Stay safe out there this winter. Yeah, that's what it's all Thanks, about. Rob. All the best to you both. Thanks very much. Thank you. All right, take Bye-bye. care. All right, so there you go. That's uh, Sheila Churchill and uh, Mitch Putnam, who uh, are two of the survivors from this uh, avalanche incident back in 2016, uh, the group of 10. Uh, so various injuries, as he said, just quite, a, I'm sure, a, a very traumatic experience to, to go through that. And then obviously the grief of, of losing a friend and, and Sheila losing her husband, Doug Churchill, who died in that avalanche. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure this is difficult to talk about, and I'm sure it's it's also difficult and, you know, to kind of reconcile that, right, where you're still sort of beating yourself up over all these years. Should I have done this? Should I have done that? Should I have, you know, taken that, that bad feeling I had in my gut more more seriously? But, you know, in the hopes, though, that others can learn from, from what they went through uh, so that we can ensure that the folks are able to safely use the backcountry. This isn't a message of it's dangerous, stay home. This is a message of saying, look, it can be enjoyable. It can be a lot of fun. It's a great winter getaway. But you got to know what you're getting into. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.